Well, thank you guys for joining us today, again, live in the service or online. And today we are continuing in our series called Endurance Brings Hope. And let me get all my little gadgets set here, my iPhone set. So uh, for many of you, you probably know that there is this tension in life that comes when we try to develop a sense of hope in our hearts, but we don't have the joy, the real honest-to-goodness joy in our heart to move us to where God would have us. And actually, joy is what we're going to talk about today more than anything, because I think what pulls us into a space of endurance is this idea of real, unadulterated, God-given joy. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Philippians, and we'll get there in just a minute. Uh, This week, I I had the opportunity, well, actually the last couple weeks, almost a a few weeks, almost a month here, I had an opportunity to start back into something that I was into as a kid and and a 20-something adult, and then kind of tapered off in my life and went back. So I've got to get back into shape because life is just running too fast, and as the older I get, the harder it gets to stay in shape. So I decided to get back into martial arts, specifically um, uh, a, a discipline called Krav Maga. It's an Israeli martial art, and it's really fun to do, but it's, it's, it's a very active. And I recognize today, or this week, that a young kid in their early to late 20s hits a lot harder than someone that's about 40 years old, <laughs> like a lot harder. I don't remember hitting that hard and punching the bags and, and punching the focus bags. I don't remember hitting that hard at all, but this dude was pounding me to, this week, and I thought, man, I'm not sure if I want to go back. Something that used to bring a lot of joy in my life, exercise, physical exertion, tangling up with another person, just really had a lot of joy, all of a sudden didn't seem as fun as it did when I was in my 20s. I'm huffing and puffing, sucking wind, as, like I'm going to die or pass out because I'm so out of shape. I'm thinking, dear Lord Jesus, this doesn't feel like a lot of fun. But you know, there's a sense of joy even in that, even when it's hard and difficult, even when you're breathing and and you can't catch your breath and you're doing your best to fight through to the next, well, to the next moment of energy. There's still a sense of joy that comes from that because you recognize you're doing something to benefit your life in the future. And I think most of us, we get hyped up with this idea that joy and happiness are the same thing. Happiness is dependent on circumstances. Joy, true biblical joy, always supersedes circumstances. In simple terms and a few step-by-step instructions today, we're going to go over what the Bible says, really says about biblical joy. There's actually a formula that God gives us for joy. But in the scripture, there are two men who exemplify what it is to have real God-given joy. They learned how to rejoice in some of the worst most difficult situations and circumstances that life could bring. The first is David in the Old Testament, and the second is Paul in the New Testament. Now, specifically, because we're going to read from the book of Philippians, we're going to talk mostly about Paul today. But when we remember these men's lives, we can't say to ourselves, listen, they had it all together, life was easy for them, so it was easy for them, these two gentlemen, to have a sense of joy. Most of them went through things that I think that we couldn't go through. Most of the time they were going through issues that you and I couldn't go through. In fact, I've, as we've studied and read the lives of Paul and David, they went through some horrific, terrible, difficult times. And I, and I hope to say that I would be that much of a man, and I hope to say I would be that strong, but to say in those moments of tension that they were filled with joy, I think is something that most of us, man, it's hard to relate to. 
It's one of the reasons I think the Psalms are such a blessing to us because David shares his heart of joy in the Psalms. David writes about the relationship that he has with God and it's an experiential thing that you and I encounter the same way. David, when he writes the Psalms, he writes about the full-on joy that he has in his heart, but he writes from a perspective, even though he's gone through difficulty, stress, and trial, that he still feels in his heart this encounter he has with the Holy Spirit, this encounter that he has with God that produces a sense of joy. Then we move on to Paul. Now, Paul is seen all throughout Christian theology as the superman, like he is it. Paul's the guy, as we often say, spoke five languages, could write in three of them. He's the guy that pushed the early church along to actually become what God had called it to be. When he speaks of his circumstances, most of the time they are far worse again than anything that we've experienced. Paul's letters to the Philippians are actually called the epistles of joy. Epistles are just letters that are written by the apostles. These letters summarize in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. You don't have to. We'll reference it later. But Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, we're going to learn a little bit about the background of the, the stage that's set of how and why Paul writes those words. But he's being very dogmatic to us. As Christian believers. He's not saying rejoice because it feels good. He's not saying rejoice because your circumstances leave you in a place where you should rejoice. He's saying rejoice in the Lord always. And then he puts the emphasis and says, I say again, rejoice. Now many of us read this backwards, the emphasis on the wrong syllable, and we look at words like this and we say, okay, I can learn to rejoice, but obviously Paul was saying when everything looks good. Again, he would tell us to rejoice, but only when life is perfect. Unfortunately, that's not the scenario in which Paul writes this verse at all. If you have your Bibles, again, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul writes these words, joy, I'm sorry, he writes, goofed up there, yet sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul writes this concept that even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of tension, even in the midst where his heart didn't want to lean towards joy, he finds reason to be joyful because joy is not dependent on our circumstances like happiness. Joy supersedes all of our circumstances. Joy transcends anything that we would feel in the moment. Paul's command for Christians is even in the midst of tension to learn to rejoice. Now specifically, we have some individuals who've gone through some difficult things in the life of this church at times. Now, I'll tell you this, we have great victories, but there are times when you are going to scale a mountain to see a great victory, you are going to have to go through a very tremendous and difficult battle. You can't have great victories without winning a hard war. You can't have great faith in Christ without having reason to put your faith to work. You can't have great patience without being tried or tested. Well, specifically, something I'd like you all to pray about is a family in our church, Tabitha, who sings. Her and her husband are, faith, are facing something very difficult. Her husband is a citizen of Canada. He went back to Canada to do the right thing, to check in, because his visa had worn out its, its, its time frame. And they said, you're not coming back to the United States. Now, they've applied for citizenship, and they're doing everything the legal way, and I'm sure they could find some way to sneak him into the country, but they don't want to do that. 
They want to do things the right way, the proper way, the legal way. So right now they're separated. We need that paperwork to go through fast. It's a difficult thing in their life, but they're finding moments even in the tension to rejoice. They're finding moments even in the tension to say, thank you, God, for all that you're doing in our life and all that you will do and all that you'll bring. And even when it's hard and she doesn't feel like it, you can still see the smile on her face that God's got this. God's got her back. But we often feel as though that sometimes we've been a Christian for so long and we wonder, God, how can we get through it? God, how can we get through to the next day? God, nothing's working out the way it should. Lord Jesus, come on, help me. Let me give you a story. In the book of Acts, Paul wants to go to a specific city. He, he's, he's like dead set to go. The Holy Spirit tells him, no, I don't want you to go. I want you to go to a different city. Paul uh, is redirected by the voice of the Holy Spirit, and he's smart enough to listen to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit tells him, okay, I don't want you to go. Then an angel comes to him and says, I want you to go to a different city, this city called Macedonia. So Paul went. But when he arrived at Philippi, where he writes the book Philippians to the church at Philippi, where he finds his first stop at Philippi, he's beaten. He's literally beaten with a whip because he's preaching something that's anti the Roman government. He's preaching a gospel that replaces Caesar as Lord and King and makes Jesus Christ Lord and King. And for that, for that trespass, he's literally beaten there. So imagine this. You've got in your mind this idea that you want to go to one city. God says, no, you need to go to another city. And on your journey to that city, you stop, you're arrested, and you're beaten. I think many of us will go, God, what's up? I had an idea in my head of where I wanted to go, Jesus. This is a peaceful land. Why did you bring me down this treacherous path? You know, I marvel many times, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, I marvel often at what those words actually say. Because what's written there is that Paul, five times, was beaten to the point of death. Five times in his life as a missionary, he was beaten to the point of almost death. 39 lashes on his back. Now, we know there were 39 lashes because there was a judge counting to place judgment on this man. The judge had to count to make sure that justice was served. There was an advocate for the person who was being sentenced who had to count each individual stripe so that that person wasn't beaten past their point, past their point of death. Then there was the man with the whip who was yielding the whip, and he had to count every single lash of flogging because if he did too little or too much, he himself would receive those same 39 stripes. And Paul, who felt every single one of those whips, of those lashes across his back, I'm sure he was counting every one of them. He comes to a city where God has led him, and he goes through trial, struggle, difficulty, to the point that he's literally beaten. This is where we have the stage in which Paul is writing. Paul's sent back to Philippi. He's sitting there with blood running down his back. Instead of bemoaning his losses, instead of saying, God, why did you do this to me? God, why would you put me in this situation? What happens? He nudges another, another inmate, and they start singing. 
The first time it happens, he nudges the guy next to him and says, let's sing praises to God. They start singing, and the jail is shaken. The chains fall off. They are delivered, and they're delivered even to the point that the guardian of the jail cell, he gets saved because he recognizes that Christ is in them, even through the beatings, even through the lashings, even through the difficulty. Their praise makes a way, and they are delivered from the jail cell. That jailer is saved, and his entire family comes to know Jesus. 11 years after this point, this first time he was in prison, after many more imprisonments and beatings, Paul's writing to a church just like us in Philippi. Now they should be writing him and to encourage him. This church should be telling Paul, it's going to be okay. You've gone through a lot of stuff, but guess what? God's got your back. Instead, Paul writes to the central theme of his, of his letter to the Philippians. He writes on the concept of joy. This group should be encouraging him and telling him, here's all the joy that heaven has for you. You're struggling. You're working through this hardship, but God's got you, Paul. And instead, he turns to a church, a lot like this one, and says, I want to bring you this message, this epistle of joy. Look at the tone that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. He says, always in every prayer of mine for you, I make requests with joy. Joy, the centerpiece. You can jump down to verse 18 if you want to. And he says, there do you rejoice and we will rejoice. Verse 25, he speaks of joy of the faith. Verse 26 you rejoice that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Christ Jesus. He moves on. I don't have time to go through all the chapters, but he moves on in chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul says, to fulfill ye my joy. In verse 16, he says, I rejoice in the day of Christ. Verse 17, when he's thinking of the possibility of martyrdom, that his life could be taken for the gospel. He says, I joy and I rejoice. Verse 18, he says, rejoice with me while he's literally sitting in a jail cell after he's been beaten half to death. Verse 28, he says, it's my joy. Verse 29, he says, it's all gladness. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, finally their brothers rejoice. Sitting in a jail cell, Paul looks back and he says, I count all the things, I count all these things but lost. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered all of these things. This is a real feel-good message, right? We're getting somewhere, I promise, because Paul clears it up for us. Paul, the one who's gone through all of these struggles, all of these difficulties, and decided that he would focus first on joy, Paul clears it up here in just a moment. In Philippians chapter 4, we run to a climax. The verse that we started with, chapter 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. A command to you and I, a command to a church like ours, after he's set them up by his lifestyle, after we understand all that he's pushed and struggled through, Paul says, in the midst of his back bleeding and imprisoned, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. These words convict me almost every single time I read them. I look at them and I think of my consumer nature as a Christian. I think of how consumed I am and frustrated I am at times with my circumstances and think, dear Jesus, when are you going to fix it, Lord? I've never been imprisoned or beaten for the gospel. I've been marginally offset 
in comparison. But I've never been taken, life has never taken a turn that it's taken for Paul. The command that he gives us in anything that we experience, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But then he gives us step-by-step instructions. He gives us step-by-steps how-tos to actually do what he's asking us to do. From here in our study, from here in our talk today, it becomes very practical. Sometimes practical things in church don't do well. Sometimes we want joy because someone laid their hands on us and we shook all crazy from the Holy Spirit bug and now we feel joy, hallelujah, and we go out and we're full of joy. You know that the Bible actually gives practical application many times to how we're supposed to do what the Bible says to do? Rather than just waiting for a prayer meeting, rather, just, rather than just waiting for the preacher to say the right words, sometimes there are step-by-step instructions that the Scripture gives. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, he says this, which is kind of off-putting if we don't understand the language. He says, let your moderation be known to all men. Focus first on that word known. This word known is the concept of an experiential knowledge, that they would experience something from you and I. That in moderation, that we are making known to all people by letting them undergo an experience of our relationship with us. That there's something about us that changes that's different. If we're to understand true biblical joy, we have to first let people know the moderation in which we live. You think, well, what the heck is this term moderation? Well, unfortunately, here Paul uses a Greek term that isn't used very often. It's used a lot in Aristotle's book, The Ethic, that came just before he wrote this. But he uses a very specific word. It's a temperament of the mind that is content with less than its due. It's shrinking back from insisting upon its exact right for itself. Aristotle uses it in this way, and Paul piggybacks on the concept that people should know us. They should experience us, but not experience our demanding nature, not experience our right to be right, but they should experience us in moderation. This isn't something that's easily taken on in the American church. As a pastor, I've encountered many people who live the opposite of this, and there's undue tension in their life. Why? Because they don't process things the way we're supposed to process according to Scripture. There's an, there's an overconsciousness of self, and everything revolves around this little box of self. See, Paul's saying, put away yourself sometimes. He's saying, focus on something else for a moment. There's bigger things than what you want your due right now. People should experience you, the life of God that you have, that isn't solely focused on your selfish wants and needs. You know that when a life gets caught up in this very tight view of just thinking about ourself and thinking about our wants and our needs, many times other relationships begin to break down. Paul speaks to people who are consistently being abused by the world around them, Christians who are hated for the gospel, Christians who some have been in prison just like Paul. And he says, let your attitude, your frame of mind, your experiential relationships with others be as such that they're not meeting someone who's demanding an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that they're expecting to meet someone that is different than the world around them. When we lack this attitude, it breaks up homes. We have a spousal relationship where one spouse has to be heard all the time, and they have to be right, and another spouse just has to bow their knee. It will destroy that relationship. 
It destroys friendships and loving relationships when we have our right to be right. It squelches our Christian witness when we come up against someone who doesn't believe the way we do, who doesn't see the word of Scripture the way we do, who doesn't exactly hold to the same system of ideals as we do, and we force our right to be right. It can kill our Christian witness. The idea that I must have my say and that I must have my day in court can break down relationships. That's why joy is fleeting. For many of us, joy is just fleeting. We don't have a sense of joy in our life because we've got to be right by God. We've got to be heard by God. We've got to get our point across. And social media does nothing but take this to the furthest extent possible. Social media just, it's like everybody's trying to scream out their ideals by the top of their lungs and say, look at me, I'm right. And don't get me wrong, I'm human just like everyone else. Every one of us get, can get caught into this trap and it sucks away a little bit of our joy. That's why Paul starts here and says, if you want to refresh your joy, learn to have people experience you a little different, a little softer handed than you might otherwise have. Paul demands that we don't act like this. A better translation of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5 is let your reasonableness, your being satisfied with, with less than your due, become known to all. Be reasonable with people. Paul's pretty simple here. He's saying be reasonable with people. Paul tells us later on to overcome evil, but he doesn't say that when we overcome evil, we should take a big club and beat the evil out of us. Paul says overcome evil with good by putting in its place where there are evil thoughts, evil desires, to displace that with the good thoughts, good desires that Christ would bring to us. To put evil aside by pouring in something that's greater than the evil, destructive desires of our heart. Paul actually writes about this in one word in 1 Corinthians. He uses this word throughout 1 Corinthians, and it's, it's kind of something that maybe if we haven't read enough, we don't really get the full nuance of. But he uses this term, Maranatha. Maranatha, anybody know what that means? It's that the Lord is at hand, or the Lord's kingdom is at hand. What Paul tells us, and if you study this word out in 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, you want to displace issues in your life? Learn to know and see that God is at hand. Don't focus on you being right, your right to be right. Quit trying to force the issue. Just recognize that some things are bigger than your right to be right. God's kingdom is at hand. How are you imposing the kingdom? How are you imposing the kingdom in this situation? And it will bring about a sense of joy that most of us have never understood. To have joy is to loosen the attitude a little bit, to let the rigidity, the stress of the attitude in our hearts to just get displaced a little bit. Understanding that if we have this demanding attitude, all we're going to do is start one fight after another. That we're to live in a different space where people experience us and the greatness of our testimony because they experience someone who's literally reasonable. Why are we reasonable? Because we're not consumed with the, well, with the culture. We're not consumed with the fight of the day. We're consumed with the idea that the Lord is at hand, that God is at hand, that he has come, that his kingdom is near. And if we keep that our focus, the Maranatha quote, if you don't get anything out of this sermon today, get the idea of Maranatha, that when you get bombarded with feelings of your right to be right, step back. Does it really impact God's presence here today? 
If you, if you have this need to win the argument, does it really impact God's spirit at hand here today? The kingdom of God at hand in your life today. Can you step back and take a Maranatha moment? God, you're here. You're with me. Is this even important? Is this, even, is this even important that I save? Is this even important that I have this fight? Is this even important that I struggle through? God, have your, have your Maranatha moment. Paul gives us another step. He says, be anxious for nothing. He moves on in the scriptures and he says, be anxious for nothing. Don't be worried about anything. Don't have an anxious care for any little thing. How do we really get to this place? where we're anxious for nothing. I think many of us have heard sermons, thought, uh, thoughts taught like this. How do we really get to the places where, or the place where we're anxious for nothing? Well, just like we displace a hard attitude, we displace in the same way. We, we displace anxiety by doing what Paul teaches us. That God inhabits the praises of his people. That when we praise God, and we're going to get to the specifics here in just a moment, but when we praise and we pray to God, it displaces the anxious heart that we have. So you can't be focused on two things at the same time. You can't get your mind in gear on praising and lifting up the name of Jesus and still being anxious. The two can't cohabitate the same space. But sometimes when anxiety grips our heart, we come into this tailspin. God, how's it going to work out? God, how are you going to fix it? God, what are you going to do? God, I hope you show up on time. God, please, please, please. And we turn that into some form of shotgun prayer. God, I'm just going to spray it and pray it and hope you catch one of them. That's not how we get through the anxious moments. The knowledge that the Lord is at hand, this Maranatha moment, preps us for displacing anxiety. We cease to be those who are demanding in nature. We focus on the coming of the Lord. We dwell not on our anxieties, but God's presence in our life. We put something else in place of those anxieties. It's so practical that I fear that it suffers from being non-spectacular. Sometimes in life there are things that are so practical in Scripture that I feel that we fear that it's, it's not spectacular enough. We don't get to shout from a pulpit. We don't get to show off on Facebook or Instagram. We don't get to prove to the world how great we are spiritually. What happens? We do something very simple and practical. But then Paul moves on. He says this, and where I want to get to, don't be anxious about anything or even in any little thing. Rather, in everything, by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Circle three words here, write them down. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, requests. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, requests. My guess is most of us haven't done the deep dive to understand what Paul's saying here. Is Paul just saying, if we're going to get out of our anxious state, if we're going to find joy as our home base, if we're going to find joy as our centerpiece, that with everything, we should make our prayers known to God with supplication. I don't even know what that word means. Thanksgiving, kind of know what that one means, and request. Well, aren't requests and supplication the same thing, God? No. We're going to get to it here in just a second. But 
Paul's lining out a formula that if we will stick to this formula, we will have joy that surpasses our understanding. We will have joy that surpasses our circumstance. But most of us get caught, we'll talk about it here in a minute, most of us could get caught in step number three. We never really get to step number four, which is why our joy is never fulfilled. The, the, the Greek here for prayer, it, it focuses in on recognizing the worthiness of the object. So when the Greeks used this in generic sense, this word, they would maybe be talking about an idol of stone or an idol of wood, and that this physical object had a sense of worthiness, and so it should be worshipped or prayed to. Now we know as Christians, that's not how we look at the God that we serve, not as a physical item, but a person who's to be understood, a person who's to be worshipped, a person who's to be adored. But it does talk of the sense of worthiness that we have in our prayer time, that he is so worthy that we would come to him, contrite in heart, we would come to this holy being and lifting up what says next, our supplication. Our supplication. The Greek word for supplication is something I think most of us don't understand. It's really about bearing our heart. It's really about showing all of who we are. So we come to this deity, this God that we love and serve. We say that he is holy. He is high and lifted up. That he is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our adoration. That's prayer. But then we move into this concept of supplication where we bear all. We show all, God, here's all my warts, here's all my failures, here's all my triumphs. God, this is who I am. God, this is how I really feel about this situation. God, this is stressful and hard and difficult, and I don't know if I can go through it. God, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to do here. God, I can't just be the perfect religious person. I've got to shed all of that and show you exactly the person you're dealing with. Supplication gets down to the nitty-gritty. It's about your, some of your needs being met. It's about your, your transfiguration to become more and more like Christ Jesus, that his spirit would indwell you and change you and fix you. But it's truly about bearing all. God, this is where I'm at in the moment. The second or the third thing that we move on to is this idea of thanksgiving. So we have prayer. We understand that God is worthy. He's worthy of our attention, our devotion, that we go to him because he is he is that holy, magnificent God of the universe. We move to this idea of thanksgiving, that God, or I'm sorry, the supplication, that we are going to show all of who we are to God. We're going to show and bear everything to him. We're going to just empty our hearts before him. And then we come to this idea of thanksgiving. It's hard to be thankful when you're anxious. It's hard to be thankful when your mind is still processing all of the issues of the day and all that you're going through. It'd be hard for Paul to be thankful for his situation or state when he still feels the lashes on his back and the chains on his arms. It would be hard for him to feel a sense of thanksgiving. So he had to first recognize that God is. The Bible says it's our job to recognize that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And in re recognizing his deity, we recognize that we can be honest before. God, that we can bring our supplication before him. And then after we've been honest and we've bore all that we are, we've shown him our total soul, that we sit there in an attitude of thanksgiving, God, you got this. God, I recognize who you are in my life. God, I'm, I'm showing you, I'm exposing all, God, there's all kinds of messed up things in my life. I need your fix. God, I need you here. And then we thank him for what he's doing in our hearts and our lives. But this next one trips up most of us. Most of us are good to get here. We, we understand there's a deity of God that we pray to. We understand we have 
needs in life that need to be dealt with. Sometimes we're good at bearing most of our soul. We try to decompartmentalize our life and show God everything and totally show him all that we are, like we're actually hiding something from him. Like God's ever going to be surprised when you bring something up to his throne. Like he's going to go, oh man, didn't see that coming. Ooh, sorry. He knows all, he sees all, he's experienced all, but then we come to the place of thanksgiving and some of us even get to this place. Or we, we understand, thank you, God. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for renewing my heart and my mind. Thank you, God, for the sacrifice of Christ Jesus at the cross that renews all things in me. Thank you, God, that you are making me as I am on this earth as it should be in heaven. God, thank you for the transformative power of the cross. Sometimes we get there. But here's where we get really stuck. And unfortunately, the word screwed up on the screen. It's going to say Thanksgiving again, but it's not. Make your requests be made known to God. Superimpose request in your brain. Request. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. You just talked about supplication. That's where needs get met. That's where things get met that God fixes. That's where God intervenes in our life and fixes our mess. Come on, isn't that the same thing as request? Not at all. Let me give you an example. My son, who, who loves Legos, when he started on this little journey of Legos, he got this little Lego packet. It was a little car, some kind of vehicle. And he put it together three or four times, and he dismantled it and followed the directions, and he, and he made this little car, and he was happy to show off the work that he had made. He had an experience with that toy. In fact, he started adding extras to it, and he, he maxed out his experience with that Lego set. The next time we went to Target, he saw a new toy, a greater experience. He saw another Lego set that was a little bit more advanced, and he said, Daddy, I want that. You know, I didn't look at my son and go, you selfish little brat. Why would you want that? Don't you know how much Legos cost? Don't you understand how much I work and strive for you and your brother? I put food on the table. Why would you want more? Because in our selfish mind, sometimes we always revert to this religious idea that more is greed and not growth. Do you know that God here is telling us, teaching us that if you would sit to this process. Understand he's holy. He's a God that you come to. Understand that you bear all, you show all. Understand that you are thankful for the work he's doing in your life, but then some of us never receive our full portion of joy because we're not willing to step over the line and say, God, I want to experience so much more. We're not willing to take the jump and to say, more isn't greed, it's growth. That if we would understand that if we fulfill the wants and desires of our heart, which he said he would do, that we'll experience joy that we've never, we've never understood. Paul not only expected us to walk out this four-step system, he expected it to be so practical that he could revert back to Philippians chapter 4 and 4 and say, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. That he could put that level of responsibility on our shoulders because we could then come back to the process. Every time we feel anxious, every time we feel life is besting us, we could come back to the process, understand who he is. He's a deity to be held high and lifted up. That we are to bear our soul and to bear all. That we are to be in an attitude of thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in our life. And God, I expect so much more from this day on as I fall in love with you. I believe with my whole heart that if we were honest, most of us would say we get stuck between 
Step number three and number four. We get stuck between thanksgiving and requests. We say, God, I've already asked for enough. As if he's short on time, energy, resources. God, I don't want to bother you. But I'd really like this. We might even stretch it into something spiritual and say, God, I I just want more of you. Hallelujah. God, I just want more of your spirit. I just want more of your presence. God, I, I want to be that good Christian. You know my heart, Jesus. He's not satisfied with that. You did that at supplication. You bore all that supplication. He knows you want more of him. He knows that you want to be close to him. He knows you want deep-seated relationship. You're thanking him because he's willing to give it over. But then you say, okay, God, now we got a job to do. I got requests that need to be made. And I think most of us, because we've been taught from a religious standpoint, We've been taught that asking for those requests, asking for those wants and desires, that somehow it's selfish. Listen, some of us would love to have the great faith of people that we read of in the scriptures and stories that we hear of around our Christian ethic, yet most of us fall short because we've never gotten to the point of the request. We're asking God for a seven-tiered wedding cake, and we've never asked him for a donut. We've got to get to the place where we understand that some of those next steps might feel little and insignificant. Maybe it's just a new car. Maybe your request is simple. God, I've got a car that's held together by Christian bumper stickers. God, I've got a car that can barely come in on fumes. Jesus, I need better transportation. And we sit back in our religious mind and say, I can't ask. It's too much, Jesus. You really think a newer used car is going to break heaven? But you know what it'll do to your faith? Do you know what that next step will do to your faith? Just like my son who went from one Lego set to the the next. In order for him to advance and experience, he had to have more and more Legos. I'm not going to lie. Buying more Legos as a dad, I'm like, well, whatever, if that's what you're into. But man, they're expensive. I actually thought that. And then God stopped me and said, well, what do you you mean it's expensive? Are you going to limit his development and growth because of money? Sometimes we get caught in that track because we can't see how it's going to be financed, because we can't see how God's going to do it. Let me help you out. Any request that you bring to God's throne after you've gotten through to that thankful nature, any request you bring to his throne, even if at the moment it's selfish, it's not going to break heaven and he'll come by it honestly. God's not going to steal from somebody else to get you what you're asking for. But because we have this limited mentality in our heads, We think that there's a limited nature to what is in heaven, to what God can provide. There's no limit. When will we take the limits off of God and come to the place where we can say, Holy Spirit, I I know you're fixing me. God, I I bore my soul. I know you're fixing the situation and circumstances I've gone to. God, thank you for intervening on my behalf. But now we've got a job to do. I think often in our faith life, the reason that we don't experience all that God has for us is because we cut him short. We cut him short. We don't give God a job to do. We don't give God something to do, marching orders in a sense. And I don't mean you're, you know, telling God, telling God off and telling him what to do. That's not what I mean. Strike you dead if you do that. What I mean is that God is expecting from us an attitude that says, let's go take the land. Let's go do more. Let's go experience more. God, let's go have more than we've ever had before. And he wants to be with you on that journey. But we shortcut the process when we fall out of this placement. 
So the number one reason we don't tap into joy that's unlimited, we don't follow the steps. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me, that who, who strengthens me. In spite of our circumstances, that God can be the motivating factor that no matter what you're experiencing right now, that you can move to a place of making your request known to God that tomorrow will be better than your yesterdays, that you can have the object of your faith and your desire. If you will be purposeful, focused, follow these steps. And the joy that's there, all I can tell you, it's, it's unimaginable. It's unimaginable. The joy that we experience when we move through these steps, it's unimaginable. Some of you have heard the story of Lori and I, our first car that we bought together as a couple. Now, we, we bought what we thought, thought was an expensive car. Today, maybe not so much, but at the time, it, it stretched our budget a little bit. We decided that we would buy this small little BMW, and it was going to be this great car. We're going to soup up. We're going to make it fun and fast. And I thought I was buying myself a car. found out I was buying my wife a car. That's a totally different story. She drove the wheels off of that thing, and she drove it in to the parking lot where she worked. And she worked at a church, a good faith-based church. But the, uh, the week before she, we had purchased this car, she saw a similar vehicle sitting in the parking lot. She said, I want one of those someday. And the women in her office looked at her and said, oh, you got to wait till you're like 50 years old and your kids are out of high school and you've got no more debt bills. you got to wait to experience the desire of your heart. You're not there yet, girl. About a week later, she drives up in her new flashy BMW. Silences the haters. Is that because God's interested in a BMW? No, he could care less. God doesn't care if that's, a, if that's a Toyota Camry, a BMW, or a Bentley. He doesn't care. What he does care about is that we walk through the process and experience the joy, the fulfillment in our heart when we set our faith to do something and our faith actually accomplishes what's the backside of it because faith insists on possessing. Faith can't stop. Faith has to take ground. Faith has to go out and move and accomplish more in your life and for the gospel. And you might say, well, what does that have anything to do with the gospel? Do you actually think that we could have the faith to plant this church if we hadn't already gone through those faith-filled moments of simply believing for a new car? See, the problem is you don't know what little thing that you're believing for is setting you up for your future. And God doesn't care how much it costs. God doesn't care how selfish it looks. He's developing in you faith and joy that supersedes emotions. He's developing in you a relationship with him that grows beyond the norm. It wants to, needs to, has to experience more and more of who he is, more and more of his kingdom, and your faith life cannot be tied to where you are now because if it is, when it's called upon, it won't be enough. If we're going to understand what real joy is as we endure we have to understand these steps that Paul lines out. A man who was beaten, a man who was imprisoned, a man who was literally left for dead. A man who we could say by his circumstances experienced the worst of the worst, yet he says, rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. But how do we do it? We focus on these four steps. We pray, we come to him praying, we understand our moment of supplication bearing all, we thank God for his, for his movement in our life, we thank God for his impasse in our life, and we move to that point of request, God, this is what I want. 
This is where I want to go with you. God, this is the new experience that I want to have. God, this is the growth attitude I need to see happening in my life. Too often we never move to these steps because we are in our mind wondering how selfish it looks. Listen, it's not selfish to go to God and to say, Lord Jesus, I want more of you. God, I want to experience more. God, I want to extend my faith. God, I want to believe for more. It's not selfish. It's selfish if whatever you're believing for owns you. If you come to a place where what you believe, the back end of your faith, you can't give it away when God says to give it away, then it owns you and you don't own it, and that becomes a selfish endeavor. But the moment you can turn it loose and say, God, it's mine for a time, and I'm thankful that I've grown to this extent of using my faith, but the moment you say use it, the moment you say give it away, the moment you say, God, it's not mine anymore, I'll give it away. The thing that defines whether or not what we're seeking for, that more moments in God, the thing that tells us whether or not it's greed or growth, can you get rid of it? Can you let go of it? Can you give it away? Listen, if it's your influence, can you give it away? Can you let somebody else use it? If it's your finances, can you give them away? Can you turn loose of them when he says to let go? If it's your spousal relationship, can you say, God, Use him, use her in the life of somebody else. I don't own them. God, use them in the life of somebody. They don't serve me, they serve you. And by serving you, they might serve others. So God, I turn them loose to be all that you have for them. Even in your kid's life, as they grow up, do you have that moment where you turn to God and say, God, take them, they're yours. God, I poured into them for a lifetime. God, I hope these little buggers turn out to be who they're called to be. But God, take them, make them who you called them to be. The difference is, what can we let go of? So this morning, I want to ask, how are you doing on these steps? And generally understand how someone's life of joy is working out by how well they follow these steps. Don't get stuck. Don't get caught between thanksgiving and your request. Don't get caught between step three and step four. Get to that place in Jesus where you say, God, I want more. God, I want more experiences. God, it feels kind of selfish right now, but God, oh, I want more Jesus. Get to that place where you can honestly let your guard down, your heart down, and say, God, I need to expand my faith. I need the more.